Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dial the gate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, everyone. My name is David Reed. Welcome to another episode of Dial the Gate. We are very fortunate to have Robert C. Cooper back with us to discuss Atlantis, its inception, his episodes, and the ending. So from beginning to end, this is a 90-minute show about Atlantis. And I really appreciate you being here for it because it is a fascinating discussion, as Robert always is. And before we get started uh, and bringing him in here, if you like Stargate and you want to see more uh, content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal to me if you click the like button. It does make a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will help the show continue to expand its audience. And please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. Giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last minute guest changes. This is key if you plan on watching live and clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next several days on the gateworld.net YouTube channel. So this is a uh, pre-recorded episode, so Robert will not be able to take your questions in real time. This is what we have to do to accommodate his schedule, and we are more than thankful that that he makes the time for us that he does. So this episode, um, since it's pre-taped, we won't be able to have a, a back and forth at the end. So the questions that you have, just uh, keep them in mind that we're hoping to have him back for another episode, and I will give you all an advanced opportunity to ask those questions then. But with this episode, I really wanted to keep it uh, focused specifically on a specific uh, uh, line of thought for Stargate Atlantis and its uh, creation and his episode. So without further ado, let me go ahead and bring the writer, director, and executive executive producer of Stargate Atlantis himself, Robert C. Cooper, in with us now. Robert C. Cooper, back for his fourth appearance on Dial the Gate. I am so fortunate to have you, Robert. This Every time you come on, I learn something new. You know, I, I thought it's, at a certain point, it's like, I can't learn anything more about this franchise. And it's just not true. You know, these, these 17 seasons, there's so much to mine and i really want you to know how much it means to me to have you uh on once again well it's a lot of fun you're uh you're a great host so uh that makes it all worthwhile thank you uh news recently has come out that uh, amazon is reportedly offering um a high bid for the uh, mgm archives so as it stands at the moment there is a reasonable chance that amazon may be maybe stargate's future home thoughts uh, you know, we'll see. I, yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, like to speculate. These okay. things take time and, and who knows whether it'll happen or not. But certainly there is a ton of uh, a very dramatic media consolidation going on across the industry. And, um, you know, these uh, jumbo streamers are looking to pad their libraries and, and uh, acquire IP and you know like you can see that 
um, you know, there's like an MGM subsection on Amazon Prime that you can sort of sign up for and get extra. And I guess they have uh, data on the value of what's there. And uh, they're just, you know, trying to take over the world. So it it seems people. like there there is... It doesn't seem there is definitely a, an enormous media consolidation occurring. I never thought we would see the day where um, Disney absorbed Fox. I, I when that happened, I was like, "Whoa!" I was really surprised. Isn't there some kind of antitrust alarm that should be going off now or something? Yeah. Because that yeah. I mean, I know that they want X Men. I get that, you know. But and there there are a few other things definitely that they were they were in that for. But I was like, when does this stop? You know, yeah. when do we start spreading out a little bit more? The well, people and it's, who are in charge it's of caused this upheaval, you know, trickle down effect, even to my level where, you know, there's such a dramatic turnover in leadership at these companies every time one of these things happens is the executive shuffle you don't know who you're dealing with right the people at these companies don't know what they're doing the things that they're developing suddenly you know go out the window because there's a new boss in town and 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 there's like hierarchy shuffles and the streamers you know are, are kind of pivoting and trying to figure out what they are and who they're serving and it's um it's created a lot of confusion and, and frankly some paralysis in, in the business that's been you know frustrating for people at my level to deal with mm -hmm. and on top of that the 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 pandemic and everything else that's happening right now it just feels like it just and this is this is maybe a little bit hyperbolic but it just feels like everything's happening at once so i mean yeah. almost like a perfect yeah, no, storm. i mean for, i've heard people describe it as like we were already going through an earthquake and then a hurricane hit you yeah. know yeah it feels that way for sure but you know what um it won't be boring <laughs> jeez well you know i mean i guess i just have to kind of rely on the fact that people continue to want to be entertained and uh we just have to find the right avenue to get those stories to 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 eyeballs absolutely and i don't think that there's uh there's any question that streaming is here to stay for a while until we get holodecks at least yeah so. yeah or or virtual reality yeah. that's that's certainly true uh i am i am impressed that uh programming like the snyder cut um and and movies like Godzilla are uh, versus Kong are appearing to achieve what they've wanted to achieve both in theater and in the the home market. I was kind of interested to to see that it was going that way. I wasn't sure if um, these movies could, and a lot of that still remains to be seen, could recoup uh, without having you know a billion dollar you know opening month. I don't begin to, I don't pretend to understand the economics that, that are going on either. Cause I don't, I don't understand how, uh, you know, $500 million for the, for the Lord of the Rings series on Amazon makes financial sense. Like I don't, I don't understand from a business perspective, what revenue gets attributed to that expense. Right. Um, or how people look at like how Netflix could pay a hundred million dollars for a feature. 
and justify that on their balance sheet. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there, there's, there's people who are figuring that out and, and for whatever reason think it's worth it. But uh, I, I, I don't know if that's sustainable. Correct. Um, but I also don't think, I also don't, don't think that, uh, you know, theatrical motion pictures are going to persist in the way we've known them for the last, you know, few decades. Yeah, I agree. In, unless there is like hyperinflation, which is always the case. I think the, uh, the possibility, uh, I think that, um, the age of the billion dollar uh, blockbuster, at least theatrically speaking, is is over. And, you know, in situations where it comes down to like Amazon and Google, for instance, for for YouTube, YouTube, you know, with with the um, uh, the advertising partnership uh, program, um, I mean, they run at a net loss, but other elements of Alphabet Re- are are able to keep that buoyant so it's that's a yeah. situation where you have a larger company that's able to help other divisions in order to you know keep this thing ticking yeah so. well we're shortly all going to be slaves to the ai anyway so i know you might as well just give in now right <laughs> no fight the good fight absolutely stargate atlantis 2004 but let's go back a little bit earlier 2002 Sci-Fi Channel agrees to pick up Stargate SG-1. And this was this was a big deal because uh 5 seasons Showtime had only agreed to 5 and um and that was that was pretty much it. And then at some point during the 5th season, you got interests, you got you heard murmurs of of Sci-Fi wanting to to pick up the show for a sixth and and I guess final season at that point, or maybe take it to more. Oh, it was not. It was not going to be it. No, no. It was. There was definitely hope for a longer future. For longer. Okay. Yeah. One. One. You know. There's always uh, unsung heroes, people who you wouldn't, whose names you wouldn't know, that made huge difference in the in the uh, you know lexicon of the show. Uh, w- one of them is a guy named Tom Vitale. I don't know if you've heard his name before, but he uh, he was in acquisitions for for sci-fi. So, and he you know he had sort of he liked the show, but he had also seen the value in the repeats um, on their air. So, I mean, at one point, you know, this was a little later on down the line, but he, you know, we we were uh, I don't remember the exact number, so don't mm-hmm. you know. Don't don't kill me for getting this wrong, but we were a, a, a significant portion of their airtime, their primetime airtime. So whatever their primetime was, seven to ten, we were like forty percent of their air because we would run. They would run four episodes on a Monday block reruns, reruns, yeah, and then you know, and then they would run a second a rerun block, I think, on Wednesday, and then they would run the Friday night. We would have you know with Atlantis and. And SG one when they were both there was two hours. So we were like a giant block of their, but they, they, they had data that was showing them that uh, as long as there was a new episode on, uh, on coming on Friday, the rerun blocks were doing way better than when there was no new episodes on. So like they, they could, you know, a, a, a ongoing show always seemed to do better in reruns. Uh, 
um, than a show that had ended. Because I think in their minds, and particularly with sci-fi, you know, Tom used to talk about the fact that when the show was over, you know, there was, it was almost like the show was dead, you know, and they, people mourn it, they, they may go back to it, but it was like, it wasn't the same as the interest they had when it was alive. Mm. And, uh, and there was sort of, you know, continuing stories. So uh, like you, what you were saying in a way about, about YouTube, um, you know, the show was, the, the new episodes were a bit of a loss leader for the network. They were more interested in the value they were getting out of the rerun blocks. Um, wow. Anyway, he, he was the guy who, who was the sort of driving force behind the acquisition um, and sort of saw the potential to, to really um, have Stargate and, and sci-fi kind of be a, a, you know, a brand together. Stargate SG-1 season six premieres. It's a hit. By season seven, you're on the cover of TV Guide. Michael Shanks is back. Um, large, large thanks to you reaching out to him. Um, and then at some point here, this idea that had been percolating around in the the gray matter of the uh, the lexicon of Stargate, this Antarctic. Um, find in season one in solitudes there was another gate there was there was history there led to atlantis when did the talks for atlantis uh really start in earnest um well i mean we had uh been brad and i had been in conversation with mgm uh about doing a feature we wanted to do a, uh, wanted to take it back to, to features um, long before Atlantis was actually a, even an idea. Um, so we had had, we'd, we'd actually been paid to write uh, a feature script. And um, so we were, you know, we were thinking about what other things we could do with the franchise outside of SG-1 pretty much I think it was in and around season five. So it was, it was before six for sure. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And then, I mean, I, I guess I've told this story, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell it again is that we, uh, you know, we pitched Atlantis originally as a, as a, uh, you know, we were going to end SG one at the end of season seven, the plan was to, to make it a handoff so that we would, we would resolve SG one and then, and then move into Atlantis. Um, and we, one of the, uh, uh, executives who was like the top, you know, decision maker for, for, uh, the whole sort of, you know, USA sci-fi, um, world flew up to, uh, to Vancouver to, to hear our pitch, uh, for Atlantis. And we started to explain that to her and, and she was like, no, 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 no. We want them both to exist. You know, ah, dang. (laughs) And we were like, oh, okay. Um, so we, we actually had written, we had actually written uh, out a, a plan for how to, how to do a transition from one show to the next and then had to rethink that. 
Um, and so, you know, the, um, the sort of the, the, the version that you end up seeing of, of Lost City um, was kind of the, the rewrite, so to speak, mm-hmm. of, of, of the original idea. Yeah, there's artwork that exists where James C.D. Robbins has Atlantis rising out of the depths of Antarctica, presumably to combat Anubis. And then, I mean, the series would likely have been set in in Antarctica, I'm guessing, at that point. Uh, there were a lot of different uh, versions of that, yeah, okay. flying around. There were some, some different... Uh, a number of different suggestions. Let's put it that way. So if they're going to be on the air simultaneously, you can't, especially for that first season, you can't be calling up SG-1. So the Pegasus Galaxy became a logical next step. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I I also felt like we, you know, we wanted the new show to not feel like SG-2. We wanted it to feel very different. And we wanted to separate, not just separate physically from SG-1, because you're right, you didn't want to feel like we should just call on, on the other guys for help, but but actually um, make the show look and feel very different. Uh, and while it's a, you know, it's a bit silly uh, that you had to go outside the galaxy because galaxies are so darn big, <laughs> but we really wanted to go outside the access of the current gate system, right? Mm-hmm. We wanted to make it, um, and, you know, just saying it's a new galaxy just felt like it was a, a new frontier or something that had been unexplored previously. So, uh, and then the idea of stranding them there made it just feel a little more frontierish, which, uh, um, and then, and then of course, you know, the new, new bad guys were all, all also the, the sort of, on the agenda because we had sort of beaten and battered the, the gold so much that (laughs) uh, we, we win every time was the, was the joke um, that uh, they just don't seem all that formidable. So we, we needed to come up with a a new challenge that, that would seem, you know, like a, a new mountain to climb. And it certainly is is the case that uh, you know the the greatest race that uh, our galaxy has ever known was beaten by these things, not necessarily through their through any kind of superior intelligence, but just by raw numbers. The ancients lost, and mm-hmm. they gave up, and they came back to Earth. Um, what were some of the more interesting aspects of the idea that became Atlantis that you were interested in engaging in? I know, I know Brad, uh, at some point I remember he had, someone had asked him, tell us about Stargate Atlantis. Well, the Chevrons are blue. (laughs) Yeah. No longer a rotary dial. You know, to Brad's credit, he, he always, um, you know, he always uh, identified those very important um, elements that would be striking on a poster or, or stick in someone's mind as the, uh, the iconic imagery of the show. He was also very, uh, you know, very intent and obsessed with the, the city rising up out of the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a, that was a, a sequence that he was very, um, 
married to and and for good reason you know uh so i, I mean that was that was really him and and certainly the the how, how do we make the gate in um you know in that world different and, and new and fun and and i think it did excite the fans i mean i think he was 100 percent you know on the money that that people were like Ooh, that's that's fun. That's different. Um, space skates, yeah, space skates, uh, puddle jumper, yeah, you know, um, uh, yeah. I mean, look, I was, I was, uh, I was excited about um, creating a new team, you know, and and that was no uh, easy task either. Um, you know, the magic that you, you see eventually on screen uh, in SG-1, the chemistry between the team and the characters and how much fans seem to, to really love them, want to come back and see them in their adventures every week. That's, that's not like, you know, you don't just, just snap your fingers and, and have that happen. So uh, creating that dynamic again, watching that unfold and, going through the, um, you know, the casting process with, uh, with the network was interesting. Uh, the writing process. I mean, I, I think fans probably know that, um, McKay wasn't always part of the team. Benjamin Ingram was his name. Yes. So, uh, so, you know, those things that happen, you know, along the way, uh, this relative, uh, unknown uh, guy, you may have heard of him, uh, Jason Momoa. He was, so. uh, you know, that was a like. Honestly, people were like, "Really, this guy?" Like, honestly, we had to have arguments with people about him, and it was, it was uh, you know, that was stunning uh, to me because you just looked at him and was like, "He's a thing," you know? Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's true. And uh, he was second season. We had Rainbow Sun Franks in right. season one. That's right. And um, I think that for me was, was the most uh, exciting and challenging part of creating that show was getting that chemistry right. Uh, the, one of the things that, that, uh, that uh, Tori, meant, Tori Higginson mentioned to me once, you know, she was, she was shooting Rising and New Order back to back. And had said, you know, on uh, on the Atlanta set, there was there was an energy, especially with Rising, of something to prove. We're 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 the new kid on the block. And then she would go over to New Order, uh, to SG One for New Order, and there were fart jokes, and you know, everyone was just kind of not 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 getting the work done, but definitely more of a chill factor there because they were going in. You guys, they were entering the eighth season, clearly bonus territory for any. You know, by any reasonable measure. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a difference between a newlyweds and a, and a uh, <laughs> uh, you know a well worn marriage, I would say. <laughs> That's exactly right. With all the all the bells and whistles to it, that yeah. and it was a cast that was definitely a different energy from uh, the SG One cast. Uh, to to put it to put it mildly, there were just and to your earlier point, there are the magic that occurred with those original four um, 
in many ways will will like like the next generation cast from Star Trek. You can't duplicate it. Every cast is going to be its own energy, and well, every cast is going to have its own fan base attached to it. That's true, um, and certainly we got flack for making changes. But I feel like some of the early lessons we learned maybe not that early. They were you know seasons three, four, five, whatever. Mm. We we fretted over making cast changes. Like it wasn't something that we just did, you know, we weren't just like, Oh, let's just, you know, replace Michael Shanks with Jonas, you know, with, uh, 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 character. Corin, yeah. Corin, yeah. Corin Nemec. Uh, but the fact that it worked out right. taught us lessons that the franchise and, you know, with certain elements of the franchise were above uh that type of you know that that was not gonna that was not we weren't gonna fail for making those changes and in fact they made the show more interesting and better like in a way missing daniel for a year made you appreciate him more when he came back boy was that and, the truth i mean corin was wonderful but that's true yeah that's not a knock against corin or, or the character of jonas um and so you know when a show is going as long as, as we did, having new chemistry, having new elements come in, having sort of challenges arise, um, I think we gained some confidence that, you know, the show would go on. And, you know, we, we ended up, for example, you know, you were mentioning Tori. I mean, Tori was not originally, you know, playing that role in, in uh, uh, Lost City. City. Yeah. So, so there, there were a number of, of times where we went through changes for, for various reasons, you know, obviously bringing in, um, uh, you know, the, the total sort of redo in seasons nine and 10 of SG-1. Um, that, that sort of stuff is, I think, born of having maybe, you know, survive some of the early changes and realizing that change actually can make the show maybe not better, but live longer. In in some cases though, uh, it does, it, I, I know no other uh, show that successfully rebranded itself w- with, with the cast uh, as well as SG one did other than mash. You know, and I think uh, it's one of the things that Ben Browder mentioned to me. You know, when yeah. when he first uh, when he first went into that, and you know, what was what was interesting, particularly about that, watching behind the scenes. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, look, we 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 also you know benefited from from the availability and uh, the the fact that we were able to get both Ben and Claudia mm-hmm. that they already had a certain chemistry, even though, you know, obviously it was very different. Um, the, we were able to recognize, Hey, that might work if we put them together, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, with, with Atlantis, one of the, one of the things that did, you know, I think more frequently uh, occur on its playground was the the cast change lineup for better or for worse for whatever uh reasons from one to the other i mean you know amanda tapping she came in for season four you had um the brilliant robert picardo for season five not to say that amanda wasn't brilliant but i mean wow and it was just the 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 um the the structure of atlantis 
did lend itself to more of an outpost feel where people could um, come in and out in the story. And and as sci-fi proves again and again, especially you did with Atlantis, come back in again later yeah. in one form or another. So yeah. replicator or clone or, you know, you're never really dead in science fiction. There's always a chance yeah. to come back. Yeah. So the, the, the series ran for five seasons, which, uh, as you said when it ended, that is a perfectly respectable uh, amount of time uh, for, for any TV series. And with this show, you had an opportunity to stretch uh, your creative legs uh, further. And I want to talk about some specific episodes in it, if you don't mind. Um, I'm looking at the, the list of shows uh, that you wrote. Um, I do want to talk about bringing the Wraith to life. Where did the idea for the Wraith uh, come from? Did it come from trying to be a little bit less like the gold and, and trying to make something more dark and male- male- malevolent? The the punk rock style, you know, the 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 makeup, the, the, the there's so many brilliant things that Atlantis brought about. And I think the, the Wraith was one of them. Definitely. James Robbins designs were just extraordinary. Um and the effects, it's, it's a fast and it's a faster paced show. Yeah, we I mean, look, we, you know, we were looking at, well, what could be, you know, what's a what's a sort of tried and true mythological monster that we could adapt? You know, not, nothing is ever wholly original. Correct. Um, and. You know, we just felt like space vampires was something that hadn't really been fully mined. And, uh, you know, I thought the idea that instead of just sucking blood, they were like literally draining the essence out of you. Um, that was just a cool image. I mean, again, Brad, Brad and I both thought, you know, it would be it would be a cool visual image to see someone have that life drained out of them and that these guys are just, um, you know, they're, they're merciless in that way because they, that's how they live. Right. Mm -hmm. Like to them, uh, you know, there's a version of an alien landing on our planet going, wait a minute, you raise cattle and Mm -hmm. kill them, eat them. And uh, you don't have any moral problem with that. And we were like, from the race perspective, it's the same thing. It's like, we don't see humans as anything other than just food. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that was sort of the conversation that led to, to that. And then the structure of them and the various types of wraith, and obviously the eventual sort of revelation of the queen and the hive type, uh, sort of social structure, um, just sort of snowballed out from that original conversation. They 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 were space vampires. The, the it, it's interesting because the the scariest single and I'm I'm going to take a moment to fanboy here. The the scariest single image in that entire show, in my opinion, was one that you devised. There's a shot, and I don't know why, but it just gives me the heebie-jeebies. There is a shot in Satita where the village leader's daughter is on the ground and she is being, she is being taken by a wraith drone. 
Mm. And it's just one of the creepiest moments of the entire show because we were just in- introduced to this character a few episodes earlier. And you have this young girl being assaulted, her life being drained out. It's, it's the perform. It's it's blink and you'll miss it. And it's just like, ugh, you know, I mean, it well, was. And, yeah. And some of that, I, th- I mean, some of that is, I think, how it was shot. You know, I think there was this this sort of uh, energy to that episode. Um you know, again, unsung heroes, you know, Brenton Spencer was the DP on that. Mm. Uh, uh, our, our camera operator was unbelievable on that episode. Um, you know, they brought a tremendous amount of, uh, to the table. Uh, I can't take credit for it, but, um, we just had fun with, with doing stuff differently, stylistically, uh, that, yeah, I mean, look, in 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 those types of battles where it's like mass amounts of people just getting killed, mm-hmm. um it's always it's always worthwhile <laughs> to stop and try and humanize those moments so that they mean something more than just, you know, uh what feels like a video game mm-hmm. uh, of going people down, you know? Like I think I think you want to um you want to sort of portray the, the the real sort of tragedy of it uh and and look i i just always i always liked um with my episodes when i was directing i was always looking for what could i do that was different <laughs> that that would make the show that episode look and feel different from from the show uh not that it didn't end up being an episode of atlantis um but i just wanted to and then you know some of the other directors would get mad at me uh sometimes because they'd be like i didn't know i was allowed to do that um <laughs> satita i've been looking forward to talking with you about satita this is your second uh uh episode as director if i'm yes an ending hadn't aired yet the ending was later um this is your first action episode. This is probably the action episode. It feels like uh, a feature. I don't know how you shot it in the time that you did. If 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 the- oh yeah, and we had a lot more. Like I, I that was a we had ten days to shoot that. We normally would shoot an episode in seven and a half. So, so you shot it okay. Tell I was us about I was this being, episode. I was being greedy, greedy executive producer. Um, <laughs> look. Uh, one of the lessons you learn, you know, being an executive producer uh, is that, you know, look, with all due respect to, to directors, uh, uh, it's, it's a lot about what you're putting in front of the camera, right? Like, and, and yeah, they have to do a good job and shoot it right. And, but a lot of times directors lose that battle in the production process. Mm-hmm. You know, I need this, I need that. I want these many extras. I want, I want to do this shot with a drone or I want to do this shot with a crane and it, it gets cut. So again, it's not that it's not fair because, you know, as the executive producer, I mean, obviously I have a studio and a network to answer to, but I can also go, I'm going to, I'm going to pull some of these resources over here and I'm going <laughs> to put them in my show to make my show look better. So as a director, you know, I had those, you know, the, the time and those tools to play with, um, 
yeah, and, and again, like I said, some of the other directors would kind of kind of grumble at me. <laughs> well, I mean, I would say look at the result, you know, and look look at the result of that episode. It's one of the finest hours of Atlantis, and thank and in no small part. To Jason Momoa's performance. He had been with the show for a year at this point. There was a story to be told there that was obviously waiting to be told was what happened before um, the the team met up with him. And we get to see this carried out. We get to actually see the Wraith who was responsible for exterminating his people. Jason Momoa, I mean, he said, and, and I quote, it was such an honor when he wrote it. That's what he told us in his trailer, you know, at the time. It was such an honor when you wrote this episode. And well, he had, not had a, he had not had an episode built around him. Right. You know? and, and I thought it was important, um, with, with the exception of maybe Runner, which is, was his introduction, mm-hmm. um, he had not really sort of had a featured uh, uh, role. So I really felt like I wanted to showcase that character and, you know, show you everything that Jason can do. And how was it directing him? How, what was, what was amazing. working amazing. through that process I mean, with him? Yeah. I mean, he, he was just, you know, any, anything you want to do. We had, <laughs> there was one time where we were racing the, uh, the clock and we had just, we were just needed to be out of the, um, the sets we were in. And I wanted the shot of him uh, doing the two, the two guns as he, flew across the, the hallway and you know Brenton bless his heart was like had no time to light that like no time uh it was just throw a light on and you can kind of see it it's just, just this whitewash of light um that we tried to fix later but uh <laughs> it was like get the shot or don't get the shot and uh he did it once and you know, I, I, he, he was, he was hurting. Like a lot of this stuff is hard on your body. Like, mm-hmm. I, you, you know, he did a lot of his own stuff. Um, you know, he's wearing this, this hard plastic and leather uh, stuff all over him and they had padding inside some of it and whatever, but he's still launching himself across the hall onto a very hard floor. And, you know, <laughs> He would, he was like, uh, uh, I don't think I can do that again. And I was like, well, um, I'm going to tell you that it didn't look perfect and, but I'm willing to go with it or, you know, we could try and do one more and get it right. (laughs) And I said something to him that was meant to be just a fun challenge. And it was a, it was a sort of inappropriate thing to say. And and he just looked at me and I was like, oh, shit, I just said something I shouldn't have said to Jason Ramon. <laughs> and and uh, it was, you know, I was basically trying to say, you know, another another guy like a real stuntman would do it. Um, anyway, he got up and he did it again and it looked amazing. Wow. Uh, but uh, but that's the one we used in the show. But he uh, he was he was not too happy. And I, I think later that year like he remembered it in his head and later that year when we were done the show we were at a rap party and he picked me up and hugged me and squeezed me so hard i thought every bone in my body was going to break and 
I'm I'm fairly certain that was him remembering that moment <laughs> when I when I made him do that shot again. Um, but look, he, you know, look, he's great. He deserves every um, mm-hmm. every bit of success he's had since then. I had no doubt that he was uh, a star when I first saw him, and um, I mean, his acting has has frankly come a long way. Not to say that there was you know it was bad when he was with us it's just he's done a ton of work on it and he's you know he's also had a lot of room to, he's, he's also had a lot of opportunities to to grow yeah. as well you know that yeah. has a lot of a lot to play with as well yeah um so i mean look we, that show is that, that that show was amazing i i uh we got to we shot with um uh, five different mediums like five different cameras and five different types of film we actually shot some stuff with super eight and super really and a I was a hand crank a hand okay crank I know what you, yeah uh, some of the memory stuff, the uh-huh. war stuff um you know we shot with our our hd video we shot some with film it was uh uh we shot with a high-speed camera like it, it was just like let's do everything um brent spencer had this hand crank bolex he's like can i bring that can we shoot some stuff with that and i was like sure let's give it a try um yeah there was actually one uh sequence where i lost hearing for about three days uh because of the explosions that we were doing i was not listening to the uh this is before i actually went deaf in one ear but i was not listening to the to the you know safety advisors and you're supposed to have your mouth open when you're near an explosion to allow your ears to, I, I don't know, I don't know the science behind it, but, uh, and I was on my way home, uh, that night from having shot, we had done those big explosions when, uh, the puddle jumper is taking off yes. and, and, uh, uh, I was like, there's something wrong with my car radio. Cause I was like trying to tune. I could only hear out of one side, one speaker. Oh, like, Oh, there's something wrong with this. And then I got home and I got a phone call and I put my phone up to my ear and I was like, that's crazy. What? My phone's not working <laughs> until I switched ears and realized I couldn't hear out of it my ear. It was you. Yeah, it was me. Oh, so yeah. Anyway, it's not, not, wasn't that big a deal, but my hearing came back, but it was, uh, yeah, that, that show was just, uh, was just a, uh, a ton of fun but also a, a, a ton of work. You know, we, it rained almost the entire time. There's wow. some great photos I can send you yes, of us in, please. Our, in our rain gear, uh, trying to shoot some of those fight sequences outside. The, the, the episode is so atmospheric, you know, the, the nice thing about the rain, you know, as, as much of a pain in the ass as it is for all of you working in it, is it, it creates just the most, some of the most beautiful yeah, it imagery. Amazing. It looks amazing. You know, yeah. the, the and village. It's not and... like a light. It's not like a light drizzle. This was like yeah. downpours, and uh, yeah, the crew is, uh, you know, amazing. It's never they can pull it off. You know, and and you you can watch Stargate, and from episode to episode, from one shot to another, if there's like a two people talking, it's raining in one shot, and it's not raining, in, and you could see the lighting was dialed in such a way to make it as obscure as possible. Or in some circumstances, you can hear it. Okay, we're not going to be able to get away with this one. It's just had the sound of rain, and so it is. Yeah. It is in this scene. You, know, you had to make it work. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to go back to uh, before we go too far from it, um, Joel Goldsmith redesigned 
much of the sound, or maybe should I say solidified, the sound of the Wraith in Satita, with a lot of percussion, um, with a lot of my musical jargon is is lacking but oh, mine's awful I, I i used to joke with joel all the time i would be like i you know i can't speak music right exactly i'm gonna tell you, gonna tell you the feeling i want and you're gonna somehow figure that out musically but i'm not <laughs> that's gonna... his job <laughs> yeah i mean brad is brad's amazing he knows how to read music and he knows to speak the language of mm. music uh me i'm a i'm a musical idiot i just know what i like to hear Exactly. And he made this this sound for the Wraith that was that was exciting, that was that was threatening, that had this these almost electronic kind of components to it, in addition to um the percussion and these these long you know, it's he yeah. he really, really went above and beyond uh in this this episode for you, and it's just one of the, the greatest pieces of music to listen to watching jason momoa kick ass he is uh joel was a you know joel was a genius again you know you speak about unsung heroes i don't think i mean he got a lot of credit but he never got nearly as much credit as he deserved for all the score that he did for for three all three shows agreed doppelganger i remember visiting you on set uh for the not on set but in the production offices for this one and uh i talking about nightmares and the the things that frighten us like to our core the things that um influence us when we are young and you took a lot of the the imagery uh that you know really pulled at you when you were a younger person and and put it into this very effective show uh yeah i mean i i mean the, the 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 episode where everybody has to face their greatest fears is a bit of a sci-fi trope yeah. you know like it's been done a lot um so i guess you know you you have that argument in the in the writer's room about are we going to go there are we going to do this and and then it becomes well you know if we did this what would it look like what would those elements be um and then you sort of based on that, decide whether it's going to, you know, it's worth it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, beyond the everybody's greatest fear um, element of it, the thing that's sort of stuck out for me in that episode was, was that the way um, it was the, it was the sort of the Shepard McKay relationship. Mm beats were really uh worth exploring Mm -hmm. you know that was something that i felt was fun to sort of play with do you hate clowns robert who doesn't hate clowns (laughs) i i grew up with 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 uh with uh uh, curry's interpretation of of pennywise so i definitely am not a big fan (laughs) Uh, reading that book was was pretty formative for me i mean i didn't i didn't you know i wasn't so much into horror movies but i actually read quite a bit of stephen king when i was younger yeah it uh, it is terrifying i read it years later and it was 1200 pages of just mayhem but you know and and the the idea of being 
buried alive, you know, which I think is the only, when I watch that episode, it's, it's the only scene that I wish, you know, I wish that hole was deeper because I think it would have made it more intense. Um, but uh, the imagery. I was, I was, you know what? It's, it's like these things, uh, you, you say that, it's a fair statement. The things that you have to deal with as a producer, mm. finding a place in Vancouver where you can shoot that looks like it's the wilderness and that you can dig a hole <laughs> is virtually impossible. Really? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Like you're not allowed to dig in a lot of these places. There was a, there was a, um, one time when we were shooting, uh, and it was right near the lake. So I think it may have been actually that episode now that you bring it up. Um, that lake where where uh, McKay is rowing the boat out. Yes. Uh, and we were shooting in in, in and around the forest, uh, married to that sequence. And you you literally could not walk off the path. Like you you know if someone stepped on on a plant that was off the beaten path, it was like alarms would go off and yeah. the, and the rangers would come and yeah. and take you away. Um, so finding a place where you could actually dig and not like in a lot of cases on, on, on other episodes as well, we would have to fake the hole. So we would build, we could put a mound of dirt, right. But we couldn't actually dig down into, it was very rare that you could find a location where you could bring in a, a digger and actually make a hole. Could, I wonder if you could have pulled it off at a, at a, a cemetery. That would have been creepy. Yeah, hard to get a permit. Okay, that's a fair point. All right, very good. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of things that you know you you type on the page uh, as the writer, and you mm -hmm. go, "Well, this is not no big deal." And then you, right. you know, you get to the rubber hits the road, and it's like, "Huh, it's a much bigger deal than I thought it was." Gonna be. I'm being thwarted by a hole in the ground. All right, <laughs> exactly. very good. Did you get any pushback from? the network here or in, in any other circumstance while I've raised the question. Uh, uh, Iratus bug coming out of Taylor's stomach blood. Mm, you may want to dial that back a little bit. My jaw hit the floor when I saw that. It was like, Oh man, they went there guts and all. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. I don't, nobody ever said anything about that. I mean, if it had been a real, like a real operation or a real thing, I think we would have got pushback. Oh, because like not in a dream. Yeah. Well, or even the fact that it's an alien, like, yeah. like the, the fact that it's not real. Yeah. Um, get, gave you a, gives a, gave us a lot of license at, uh, at times. So, you know, blood wasn't really a problem if it was like alien blood. You know, okay. uh, or human blood, but in you know, with a with an alien, you know, okay. involved. So, so no, no one ever, no one ever objected to that, really. That, uh, and I'm sure you noticed uh, the, um, you know, the vertigo shot that that was the only like my obviously I've told the story that you know Jaws was even though it's oh yeah a whale it's a whale in in uh, in doppelganger. Uh, I still wanted to 
nod to Jaws. And so there's a, the push in on, um, on Jewel uh, is the, uh, you know, the, the, the zoom uh, dolly, which is uh, known as the vertigo shot, but is also in, you know, fairly famously in Jaws. Yes, the I remember you talking about uh, how how Jaws had been uh, hugely impactful for you as a child. I mean, you wouldn't go into like the water or something at a certain point after seeing this film. I'm going in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> there be sharks in there. And you know, you think that's you think that's silly. No, I don't, my friend. Seen, I'm laughing out of frustration. Have you, ever seen, have you ever seen Thunderball? I mean, I only needed to see like a like a couple of frames of that, and I was like, all right, that's it. Pools are out. Now, you're talking to someone who should have gone into major psychotherapy after being eight years old, and for whatever reason, when you're really sick, your immune system is down, things affect you differently. Watching the nuclear apocalypse scene in Terminator 2 and have it completely rewiring your brain for like two years. So believe yeah. me, I get it. You know, there you have to exercise those demons however you can. And even as an adult, getting to do that on your show has got to be just fascinating to go through. So yeah. and using Joe Flanagan's Shepherd as a lens to kind of do that and calling back to a a cousin species from season one of SG one, the crystals. It was great. You made it happen. Thank you. It's a good show. Vegas. Vegas, Vegas, Vegas. We talk for an hour about Vegas. So. I well, you know, let's let's get into it. Very different Atlantis. Almost like it, it, it was almost like it was trying to, like, you were wanting to do something other than Stargate for an episode, to have, like, an, an Atlantis episode that was outside of itself, and and then marry that with, it, dovetail it in an interesting way with, with the, the series finale, where the narrative kind of um, falls ass backwards into the problem of the next show, which was fascinating, but... Whose idea? I'm guessing it was your idea to to take the show to Nevada. Yeah, I mean, we we on the show, uh, you know, a lot of the producers love to love to go to Vegas uh, as a as a, on a golf trips and, mm. and um, have some fun and and uh, I I just I mean, I just wanted to do something um, special for the end. You know, like it was I didn't want to. Uh, take away from what everybody was planning for the finale and, and the, the story and the wrap up, but I still wanted to do something that was, uh, that was going to be a, a little bit different and fun. And in pre-production, and, did you know that the show was already over at this point? Did you know that it wasn't coming back for a, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at this point yeah. you knew. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always had a, uh, I love poker and, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I actually, written some things about poker and um i just was like i'd love to see uh uh you know shepherd in a poker game with a ray i mean and charlie seemed like a strange strange place to to start an episode um (laughs) but uh you know I, i i just felt like uh vegas was a was a fun opportunity um and, uh, you know, I talked to uh, the Charlie Cohen, one of those other sort of names, unsung heroes. Mm-hmm. He, he was one of our champions on the on the studio side. Yes. And 
you know, I, we had sort of run a budget on what it was going to cost to shoot the episode. And I did that before I wrote it, uh, because I wanted to make sure we could do it and, um, called Charlie up and said, look, here's what it's going to cost. Uh, and he didn't blink. He literally, I threw out the number and his immediate response was, can I be in it? (laughs) So, uh, that was Charlie. And so he's actually at the poker table. Uh Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I liked the idea of throwing fans of a long running show completely for a loop to the point where they thought they had turned on the wrong show. You know, <laughs> like that was, I had never seen that done before. Like, and I was looking for something to do that hadn't been done before. And, and it was like, I, what if this show was not this show for one episode, or at least the start of one episode, and then slowly became the show? Um, and that was that was the idea. So at the time, I mean, all the CSIs were on TV mm-hmm. and were kind of very popular, and I wasn't entirely sure I understood that. And they had such a uh, sort of fantasy world aesthetic to them. Like, they, there was nothing about them that looked real. They were just you know, supernatural uh, shows, even the idea that these, you know, people who worked for crime scene investigators were doing the things that they were doing was so, (laughs) you know, ridiculous. I don't, you know, all the power to them and the success they had. It's definitely Uh, its own thing. Yeah. But it was fat. I studied it pretty, pretty carefully for a long time. I I had our DPs look at it. I had our editor um, look at it. And a guy named Mike Bannis, who cut that episode, phenomenal editor for us. Um, so, yeah, we, we basically were like, this is CSI Atlantis. And, uh, and, and it, you know, it plays out alternate reality. We're in a story we don't really understand why. And then slowly we start to figure out, oh, this is the this is this is the reason you know and and that's the whole ultimately the whole key to to um alternate reality stories is Mm. not that we're going to necessarily be fully invested in what that alternate reality version of shepherd is up to uh but what is the key piece of information that we our heroes our regular heroes can can get and and benefit from the episode makes it look as though you guys had the run of the strip. I mean, you're out there, you're in the thick of yeah. it. Yeah. And you know we didn't. We the the uh wonderful people at the Planet Hollywood um did give us pretty much the run of their hotel and and the way it works is um when you're on Planet Hollywood, uh we we were stunned by this when we, when we were in pre pre-production and doing our sort of work with them and we were like, okay, where can we shoot? And, and they're like, Oh, well you can shoot here. And we're like, wait, but this is the strip. And they're like, yeah, but we own right. this little piece of the strip Correct. that's right out in front. And I'm like, yeah, but what about all the people? And like, you can point your camera anywhere you want. Yeah. It's probably a like, city regulation like in New York. Right. And yeah. so we just had, you know, uh, Todd go walk down the street, <laughs> uh, in his wraith makeup, nobody 
looks twice, it's Vegas, you know, like right, what's exactly. that all about? <laughs> you know, how many, I don't know how many uh, tens of thousands of people that were on the street. That Neil night. Jackson will but, blend right in. Yeah. And he walked <laughs> in with, you know, anyway, same went for the casino. We had a, a, we had a section of the casino roped off that we were shooting in and we had like signs up that said, you know, obviously please don't ruin things for us. Uh, or <laughs> right. if you're, if you're, if you're walking in this area, you're going to be on camera. Um, but yeah, I mean, we could just shoot, we just point the camera anywhere we wanted. How uh, uh, obvious question, Robert? How did you guys not secure the MGM Grand? I, I figured uh, that MGM would Grand, be the the one opportunity. Well, that seemed that would seem obvious to everyone, including us at first, uh, until it was made uh, clear to us that MGM Grand and MGM Studios are not the same company at all. So, not really. Yeah. They're completely separate entities. And uh, I think that they would have extended an olive branch. Uh, yeah, no, not really. Wow. Uh, God. No, and, and you know, there's like, uh, it was weird. There were, there were not that many options for us because they, these, these, um, these companies are obviously very concerned about their brands. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason it worked for planet Hollywood is because we were a TV show and they're a sort of entertainment. That's true. Centric brand, but like having a, uh, a gun battle or a illegal poker game or whatever, someone jumping off the roof was not something these other companies wanted anything to do with. Um, so there were a few options that we had narrowed it down to. Um, but ultimately, you know, planet, Hollywood was the one that was making us sort of the the best offer in terms of what we could do there. Um, there, there so many stories related to that episode. I mean, one I don't think I've told before publicly was that um, we had a, a, a stunt that was, you know, someone, human being jumping nine stories off a, a roof uh, and by the way, those two days that we shot there were the two longest days I've ever shot in my entire career consecutively. I think we did a, because wow. uh, it was like overtime began. If we didn't get our footage in those two days, we were going home. So I think we shot a, a uh, like a, a 16 and a 17 hour day back to back. It doesn't look like you shot it in two days. It looks like you shot it in four or five. Well, some of the de- the desert stuff was actually not shot in Nevada. Okay. The desert stuff was shot in um, uh, the interior of BC. There's a little strip of desert that is the northernmost tip of the Mojave. Wow. And it it actually is like a little piece of desert. And that that there's a behind the scenes I think that's on the DVDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we're shooting there and a sandstorm blows up. It was like the craziest thing. We're in the middle of BC and we're in a <laughs> desert in a sandstorm. And then we had to shut shooting down for a while. Wow. You see. It was, I was pulling sand out of my ears for weeks. Um, it was uh, anyway. So we're, we're shooting late at night. Everyone's exhausted. We're in Nevada. We're uh, like running on God knows what our, number of hours were on that day and we're doing a stunt where a guy's jumping uh 
you know, nine stories off of the top of a building into, it was tricky because there was a, it was an alley, a narrow alley. And so you could only put so big a, a, a bag at the bottom, right? Cause there's just not enough room for the type of bag you might normally need for that height. Like again, you can't, you can't think of all the logistics you have to go through in these types of situations. So he had to hit a pretty, pretty small target. And, um, and, and they wanted to do it. Uh, they wanted to do it once so that he could just rehearse it. Like just without, I guess, acting. I don't know. I was like, what, can we just shoot the rehearsal? Like, no, no, no. We want to do one just to make sure it's all going to work and everything. Uh, I mean, I don't know what you do when it doesn't work on the rehearsal. But... Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but uh, uh, next actor, please. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. So, so we 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 ran it one time. It went it went pretty smoothly. But then we were starting to run out of time. And I want to iterate uh, once I, more. How many stories? Nine stories. Nine stories yeah. off of yeah, Planet Hollywood. Yeah, off the parking garage. And we had uh, five cameras running and it was all being shot on film this is this is the olden days uh we were shooting 35 millimeter film we we shot atlantis on digital but we had decided to shoot film down there it had to do with cameras and accessibility and and really how we were going to get our footage back Mm -hmm. process it down there and get it up up north uh we ended up going with 35 I think DPs always love a good reason to shoot 35 millimeter film. It's like, it looks great. Logistically, maybe it would have worked to have our digital cameras down there. But at the end of the day, we decided we'll shoot 35. Um, And uh, we're, you know, we had five, five or six cameras rolling Uh, crew that we weren't all that used to. We We were able to bring some people down, but this was a local crew we were using. And the, the stunt comes goes off amazing, like just amazing. It looks great. And I remember looking over to the A camera operator and he comes out from under his his uh, uh, little hood there uh, next to it. And I'm, he, I like look at him and I'm like, ah, and he's like this. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's good, it's good. And we get back uh, to, um, to Vancouver and I think it was a day or two later, I remember... Carrie, um, Carrie McDowell, our, our, our post supervisor comes up to me with this, this look of pure white terror on her face and says, you know, the stunt. And I said, yeah, she said, we didn't get the a camera. I said, what do you mean? We didn't get the a camera. She says, they don't know what happened, but the, the film ran out. And I said, how in the world, like you have, you have to understand that, a 35 millimeter camera has tremendous amount of, of insulation around it because it's almost impossible not to hear the mag. Like it's just this noisy thing that's happening as the film runs through the camera. Weren't you filming at twice speed too on a camera? Uh, I think so. So it's ultra loud on top of it. Ultra loud. So this guy literally is under a hood, has his ear up against the, the, you know, film camera and he didn't hear that it had run out for some reason. And or not my problem. Yeah, See ya. Exactly. Yeah, uh, time to punch out. We're already two hours of overtime. Um, so the shot you see, fortunately we had a second, you know, a second hero camera that 
is is really not bad. Um, and and obviously the other the other cameras were rolling, um, but it, it wasn't the one that was the hero right. the hero shot uh, in the show. Um, but those are just you know that's just the the sort of in a feature you probably go back and reshoot it, um, or having at least been had the opportunity to wait. Uh, at the location until your film gets developed to make sure you know you have the footage you went all that way and spent all that money to get and the stunt guy uh, risked his life for yeah exactly uh, james bamford yeah. was was pissed when he told this story it was like you know at least at least he's putting his life on the line at least film it you know yeah, at least exactly. you can do is shoot it if he dies Exactly. So, geez. Well, we, we, we have some coverage of it. Uh, well, yeah, but, but you don't yeah. get the impression that it's as grand as it is. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's one of those where you listen to the commentary and it's like, so let me just tell you how good this really is. And it's We're like, supposed to be. Yeah. right. It's like finding out that Corin Nimick, you know, did his underwater sequence in all in, in one breath. You know, it's like because, you know, the camera had to they had to cut because of certain things on the screen. It's like, wow. You know, was, was this episode, um, what did, did you hit the budget that you wanted to hit for it? Or were yeah, there some yeah. things I mean, that we, look, got we, had, we, had a, we had an overage that we were, that okay. the overage was approved and we got did it. it in that number. And, um, you know, I know Charlie was real happy about his, his cameo. Um, he looks and, great. Yeah. 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 And, and Joel's uh, great. And I mean, I keep forgetting the name of the two actors cause I'm not, I'm not, into that genre, but the, but the dialogue about the finger, I mean, that was just funny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's uh, lose a finger. It was kind of a thrill to work with those guys too, from the Sopranos. Wow. Steve Shalippo was one of them. And uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's one, look, it's one of my, it's one of my favorites. I got to I, look, I got to do stuff. Uh, the kind of stuff I'm not sure I'll ever get to do again, where I can just basically say, this is, something I've always dreamed of doing. And, and then I get to, I get to go out and, and do it, you know, like uh, I'd love to shoot a show where, you know, high stakes poker game between a, between our hero and an alien and, and, uh, and, and two real poker players and a couple of guys from the Sopranos. Correct. And then, and then I want one of them to jump off a roof and, you know, that was, it was, uh, it was, uh, yeah, more fun than I deserve. <laughs> hey, your circus, your monkeys. Yeah. You know, you can pull that off. The the uh, the technical achievements of Atlantis. You know, in addition to everything else that you guys did, the the one irritation for me about about modern digital, and this is a conversation that Bruce Woloshin and I had a had a conversation uh, had talked about uh, before Atlantis was even really started. The nice thing about film is you can tune explosions. So you get all the color out of it, you know, and with digital it's yellow and white and what you film is what you get, you know, and Atlantis had a lot of, a lot of the more practical uh, explosions on the show. And with digital, it only looks so good. What you shoot well, is what and you our do. digital digital was like, that was the early yeah. years of adoption. And the first, I actually, forgive me, I don't remember what season we switched over, but I think it was the first two years of Atlantis were shot on n- not even full HD cameras. Okay. Like the, 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 the resolution was not very good. Like you can see, um, you can see, and you know, I, there are all kinds of things that I, you know, obviously if I could go back and do it again, the, the right. early days of, of Atlantis, the budget was 
shockingly small. Like the budget for SG1 was a little bigger, but that was just naturally because it had gone on for so long and you, uh, you know, you, you, you just pay, pay a little more the longer the show goes. So the, the, mm-hmm. the actual salaries were higher, uh, for, for crew and everyone across the board. But, um, Atlantis was a real challenge, particularly in the first year. Uh, once it kind of got its legs and people saw it was doing well, we got a little bit, we got a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there are lots of things I w- would love to, have, <laughs> you know, done differently. Uh, I remember being there with you guys um, for season two and you had talked about season one where it's like, we're supposed to be in this grand city and there's just walls, you know, can't I have a window, you know, can't I see something? Put, yeah, build a model out there or something, you know, yeah. put a curtain the, over it. The ancients not have furniture or did they not sit down? <laughs> Those ancients, man, they they had no time to sit. They were they were too busy causing trouble <laughs> throughout the galaxy. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. The, and, yeah. And, and I think, you know, uh, there were aspects to digital that took a while. It took a long time for for DPs mm. uh, to get used to lighting it. In, in the same way, like you, you had a uh, contrast range on, on film that, you know, you could light someone at this light and then let the background fall off. Whereas digital just didn't have that play mm-hmm. in it. And so you always saw things that you didn't want to see things to me look, look more like sets, you know, like you could make a set feel more real on film than, it felt like we were, you know, we, in the early days, I always, I was always very cognizant of it. It's like, well, why does that look so much like a set? Right. And I imagine unspeakable. Did you shoot that on film or digital as well? No, that was digital, but digital is, you know, I'm not going to look, there's people are going to shoot me for saying it's better than, than film now, but you know, the new cameras and the new uh, Mm -hmm. digital range, is um it, in the in the in the hands of the right artist is uh amazing mm-hmm. exactly i'm looking at uh the uprezzed versions of sg1 seasons one through seven that are now available on blu-ray i mean i i just if if i was the the wealthiest person in the world i would i would go to mgm with a budget and say okay let's i've got you know two or three million let's do it but i mean it is what it is. The I, I'm so thankful that you guys shot widescreen from the beginning with SG1 because you did future proof it. Yeah, um, I mean we 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 did and we didn't. I mean we, you know, we had to we had to TV safe it so that everything right. had to happen inside that box. So you don't get the same, uh, you know, the same sort of uh, framing that you would get if you were thinking of shooting it like a, a movie. You know, unfortunately, right. it's still what's on the edges is still empty space to some extent. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it should all exist in that form. I have seen a lot of, uh, uh, still, you know, four by three versions of it out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. But at least we've got you no, know, for, for fans who are interested in finding it, they, they can, it's just frustrating. Like even on Netflix, I think there's in some instances, four by three seasons. And it's like, come on guys, these things exist. You know, we're all watching, we're all watching on these now. So yeah, yeah. We're crying out loud. Uh, It's funny. You mentioned unspeakable and, 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 
the funny thing about that is we shot on these cameras that are, you know, beautiful mm -hmm. uh, movie cinematic cameras. And we actually made it look shitty on purpose because it was supposed to be set in yeah. the 80s when right. we wanted it to look like TV in the 80s because right. it was like news footage and the reality of it. So we actually degraded everything in that case. But you have uh, the ability to now. That's the point. Yeah, you have I'm the latitude. Yeah, we were we were definitely working with uh, we were early adopters on Atlantis, and we were we were struggling a little bit. Well, I, you know, go and look at an episode like the Siege Part Two, where it's you know Baghdad at night. Basically, it's still one of the most incredible sequences. Rainmaker, you guys, like Brad said, we spent some money, <laughs> so yeah, it's a yeah. it's a you guys got some really great not stuff as much as they spend now. I mean, well, you, know, you know, like, you know, when you think about the relative budget of right. what Atlantis was, even if you, you know, uh, uh, accounted for, for inflation and time, mm -hmm. you know, take take an episode of, uh, you know, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, it just doesn't. Well, it also the resources of the mouse. I mean, you're right. You know, that's that is a they're they are putting a a a feature film image on every one of those, those episodes. And they have the money and resources and the time to do it as well. They're, you know, if it's going to take, I mean, I don't say that they're saying, you know, take it as long as you, as it's going to take, but it sure does look like they're taking their time with it. And, yeah. you know, when, if, and when I am, and I emphasize the when Stargate comes back in whatever form that it's going to come back in, I can't imagine what the next version of it is going to look like. Yeah. Um, with with these cameras and and everything else that's come out now, it's just so impressive. I mean, I look at this little ship right here. It looks like a Chevron. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the shots that you pulled off with that in in universe, uh, it makes Atlantis look like it was five or six seasons, uh, five or six years earlier. And I don't know how you did it. I don't. I mean, the some of those shots are just extraordinary. Yeah, like lessons learned and and find you know finding the right people to execute that sort of thing that mm -hmm. that really helps. Absolutely. But even just like one year sometimes makes a huge difference in terms of the leap of what the technology is capable of. I'm sure there were times where it's like, you know what? I really wish we had this just a couple of years ago when I did X, Y, or Z. This would have really oh, come yeah. in handy. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I had a couple of questions before I let you go. I know you have a hard out in just a couple of minutes here, but it I I was um talking online with with some fans and someone had raised an interesting question. And I just wanted to to take a left turn and run this by you here. Someone had said online um for threads when you have Jim continually coming into the Astral Diner and his cup of coffee is empty. He's always needing more coffee and asking Omen to serve him more coffee. It's like, why is someone asked, why is his cup of coffee always empty? And I, I responded, I, I think it's a metaphor for just not being satiated. I think that there's a lot of stuff going on in that in that diner if you kind of read, but not, not necessarily so much, but like if you kind of read between the lines, you've got Oma running around left and right serving everybody, and you've got these others just kind of sitting around just lounging in their in their astral chillness, you know. Um, do you think that that's a fair interpretation about the cup of coffee? I honestly wish I remembered it more clearly yeah. uh, and better. I think 
I think, you know, one of the, first of all, actors always look for, for business. They want business to play. And sometimes it's just a matter of having a, a quirk or something that will get your attention. So not to devalue the meaning of it entirely, but I do think sometimes there are things that just come up that are, how about if I do this? And it's like, sure, why not? Um, yeah. But in that case, I think uh, there was a, a sort of a, an intent to show a passage of time mm-hmm. and a also a, the nature of the magical bottomless pit of what is available to you if you have that kind of power. You know, like, I think that's what was sort of, we were thinking about when we did that, but I'm, okay. I could be making that up too. Was it true in that, <laughs> was it true that, uh, uh, John, that you had wanted John Goodman for that role? George Zunza, uh, ended up playing Jim. I love him. And he was phenomenal. I, you know, sometimes when you're casting or, or just writing, you, you just, there's a, if someone is in your head, you yeah. have a, a, an image of something, a presence that someone conveys, a certain actor conveys that you just want to get across. And, and uh, if I said that, or if that came out somehow in a conversation, I might've, I might've said he's like John Goodman, or wouldn't it be great if we had John Goodman, that, that sort of thing. That's just because when you're writing, you're like, that's the kind of character I, I see. have in my head when I'm, when I'm picturing who it is. Got it. Doesn't necessarily mean he was approached. Yeah, correct. Well, I, I don't honestly, I don't remember, but I, okay. I, 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 you know, I was thrilled to get George. Absolutely. Uh, this has been, as always, Robert, a, a treat, and I'm I'm really thankful uh, to have you back on the show. It was great to to take some time. Uh, well, it's certainly mental calisthenics for me. I absolutely, stuff that happened so long ago. Ditch the ginkgo. Come on, my show. You got it. Um, it's it's a pleasure, sir, and uh, I, I look forward to hopefully having you back again later this year. All right. Well, it's always always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much to Robert C. Cooper for joining us in this uh, very special episode of Dial the Gate. I hope you found that uh, discussion as fascinating as I did. Um, Robert always has interesting stories to tell, and um, it, it is it is my singular delight that that he continues to come back and join us uh, episode after episode if you enjoyed that show uh please consider clicking the like button leaving a comment sharing this with a fellow stargate friend it does make a difference with youtube's algorithm in sorting uh new episodes new new channels to other uh, users out there who it recognizes are stargate fans so please consider doing that and uh we'll we'll get uh, the show in front of more eyeballs and more eyeballs means uh, more views and more views means that I can continue to to do this program uh, for next week's uh, lineup of guests this this recording is a little in advance so I don't have that scheduled to the date of the recording of this so please visit dialthegate.com for that information and the YouTube page will also be loading up those episodes as well my name is David Reed for dial the gate thanks again to Robert C Cooper thanks again to my moderating team Tracy Keith Jeremy Reese Anthony summer and my production team Jennifer Kirby Linda, the gate Gabber Fury, you guys make the show possible. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate. We'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. 
The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com. <laughs>